Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Catch your errors before your users do with Rollbar. If you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they have a special offer for you. Go to Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Sign up and integrate Rollbar to get $100 to donate to open source projects via Open Collective. Once again, Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Today you're listening to JS Party. This is another episode where we consider JavaScript to be a party. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We actually have uh, some really exciting stuff to talk about this particular episode. Um, we we have our regular panelist Nick. It's great to see you. Yeah, good seeing you too. And we have a very special guest joining us today to talk about uh, a very exciting topic: machine learning. I'm very excited to welcome Paige Bailey. Hey friends! Hello! Delighted to be here and to talk to you all about JavaScript and about TensorFlow.js. So Paige, you currently work at Google and you're a senior technical advocate for TensorFlow, is that right? Yep, I am I am on the DevRel team for TensorFlow, um, which is embedded within our research and machine intelligence org. So uh, Google has a whole bunch of developer advocates. You probably follow a lot of them on Twitter you know, whatever your favorite flavor of social media is. Um, but our org is a little bit different in that it's embedded outside of um, outside of cloud and right with the TensorFlow team. So it's it's kind of rad that I can, um, if something's broke, I can like literally look over my desk and yell at somebody to fix it. So it's kind of <laughs> awesome. Yep. That sounds very cool. So we're going to back up a little bit um, because I know that in the JavaScript community, some of us will have heard of just the, the term TensorFlow or, or the, the actual tool, um, but not everybody knows what it is. So what exactly Me. is TensorFlow? Uh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's Nick. Nick's definitely interested in finding this out too. So, so how does TensorFlow fit into machine learning and what exactly is it? Awesome. So uh, TensorFlow is a library intended for numerical computation of all sorts. Uh, so it's not just for deep learning. Um, you can also do a sort of traditional machine learning. So if you have familiarity with things like decision trees or random forests or boosted trees or support vector machines or logistic regression, all that stuff is supported with TensorFlow as well. So just think of it as like a numerical computing library. Um, if you if you have experience using Python, you might have used something called NumPy before. Um, and TensorFlow can kind of be uh, almost used as a replacement for NumPy. Um, but what it's intended to be is a collection of tools, a sort of very expansive API that gives you the ability to do 
these complex numerical tasks in a more straightforward way that can also scale. Um, so not just on small amounts of data, but on any sort of data size that you have available and on a variety of data types. So everything from text to, um, to CSV files, to video, to audio, to pictures, um, all sorts of stuff. And TensorFlow got a whole bunch of a whole bunch of press and around 2015 when it was first released um, because it was uh, it it created this uh, really first robust end-to-end -end machine learning framework for doing um, for doing these complex deep neural nets um, and it had been used at Google historically for years and years under a different name um, but Jeff Dean who's who's kind of a baller was like, hey man, we're gonna open the <laughs> it's true. <laughs> he he was kinda like, hey man, we're gonna open source this. And then they did. And they've just been open sourcing more and more of it since then. So so that is kind of a, a long-winded example to what TensorFlow is. The TLDR version is uh it's tools that help you do predictive models um and also any sort of complex numerical computation, usually with Python, um, but it's grown to be a collection of languages, lots and lots of uh, lots and lots of additional products. So now we have Swift for TensorFlow, we have TensorFlow JS, we have TensorFlow Lite if you want to put TensorFlow in a phone, we have TensorFlow Extended if you want to like build these end-to-end -end machine learning pipelines. We have, oh God, we've got TensorBoard to visualize machine learning, we've got uh, Jax and XLA and like the last time I checked there were like 77 sub projects under the TensorFlow organization repo uh, and GitHub. So it's a big it's a big honking thing. Um but also what question like what uh does that help clarify it a little bit or should I give tangible examples of like stuff you can do with TensorFlow? So I I'm obviously very uh new to machine learning and and looking into all of this but when I like look for YouTube videos and such. Um, and m the topic of machine learning comes up like uh, maybe I'm just drawn to the cool name, but neural networks is the thing that comes to mind. So is TensorFlow like a way to build neural networks or is neural networks like just a generic term for all the computational things that you can do with TensorFlow or what's the relationship between uh, those two? That's a great question. And so neural networks are one kind of algorithm or one kind okay. of, of sort of implementation that you can have for machine learning models. Um, TensorFlow certainly helps you build those. Um, and with the, the sort of newer versions of TensorFlow, since Keras, which is a high-level API, has been embedded, you can build complex neural networks, train them, fit them, use them to predict things with less than 10 lines of code of Python. Um, and the same goes for TensorFlow.js. Like you, can, you can build complex neural network architectures capable of analyzing, you know, billions of images or, or very uh, sort of massive, uh, sort of massive input data um, with, without having to think too hard about it. Um, that's, that's kind of the idea is that you shouldn't have to have a PhD in machine learning. You shouldn't have to understand, you know, the intricacies of, of linear algebra and, and uh, sort of ordinary differential equations and all the rest of it to be able to, to implement a neural network. Can I ask what is the hello world of a neural network or what's the hello world that you would normally do in TensorFlow when you're first getting started? So the hello world of TensorFlow 
is probably the MNIST uh, example. And MNIST is, if you've been doing machine learning, it is horrifically painful uh, because the data set is used everywhere. Um, but it's, it's basically, um, it, it's being able to take in images of uh, integers, so handwritten digits uh, from zero to nine, and being able to classify them, um, being able to classify them uh, as to what what digit they actually are. And I am going in the in the changelog Slack channel. Um, I am going to put in the code in the Python code that is uh, sort of all that you would need to do in order to implement that model. Um, it really is like you know just a few lines. And what it's doing, um, if you if you take a look at the chat window, is that you import the TensorFlow library, you import the data set, um, you divide it into training and testing. So um, you would take a portion of your data um, to build a model off of, and then you would hold out a little bit to make sure that um, uh, hold out a little bit to make sure that whatever prediction you made was accurate. Um, so data that your model hadn't seen before, so it couldn't cheat, you know, um, then you would build out a model. And here we have a, a dense layer, a dropout layer and another dense layer. Um, you would compile it with some with a loss function called sparse categorical cross entropy and an optimizer called the atom optimizer. There are lots of different kinds for, for losses and optimizers. Um, and you can have a lot of different metrics that you would care about. Um, but those are just the ones that you would use there. You run model.bit um, and say how many epics you want, how many times you want to cycle completely through the data. Um, and then you would use model.evaluate to, to get the answer of how right or how wrong you are. Um, but that's, that's all it is, right? It's, and all machine learning models and all machine learning projects really follow that same pattern in that you have training data, you have test data, you build, uh, you build some sort of model architecture, you run it on your training data, um, and then you, you test how accurate that um, you test how accurate that you were. Um, and the, uh, the intro to words that are used in TensorFlow glossary. I love it. Yes. So we have a thing at Google called the machine learning crash course. Um, and we have a machine learning glossary associated with the machine learning crash course. And it is also a lot of words, uh, but the words, the words are explained and you actually end up with some that are some terms that are kind of cool, like crash blossom, like crash blossom <laughs> should totally be the name of a band. Um, but what it means is that it's, uh, it's a sentence or phrase with an ambiguous meaning. So, uh, so you, and you see those a lot in newspaper headlines. So I think that the version that they, that they mention on the, on the, um, the website is red tape holds up skyscraper, um, because it's like, wait, what, what does that actually mean? Um, but I love it. And, and they, they cause a lot of problems in natural language understanding, um, tasks because, you know, ambiguous meanings. This is a hello world example, but it's actually been applied to lots of different real world cases for like at least a decade or two, right? Like for example, recognizing handwritten numbers is very useful when you're trying to cash a check by taking a photo of the check, right? Is that sort yeah. of what that would be used for? 
Absolutely. You are spot on. And also, I think the first use case that it was uh, that it was used for was back in the 90s. Um, so whenever the U.S. Postal Service, whenever people still sent mail, um, they <laughs> they they uh, they would use it to detect the zip codes on um, on envelopes and automatically sort them based on that. So it's it's a very uh, it's it's sort of a very useful application. And that everybody, you know, everybody loves uh, everybody loves being able to automatically transcribe uh, something that they take a picture of. Uh, but it's but it's also straightforward in that less than ten lines of code to do a thing. And and so for that last uh, that last layer, you might notice that it says uh, activation equals tf dot nn dot softmax, and then there's also a ten there, um, and what the 10 means is that you have 10 different options for things that it could classify. Um, so 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Um, and then softmax just means that it would be a classification problem. So you're picking one of those 10 things as opposed to giving a numeric value like 9.2 or 12.5 as an estimate. So this Hello World example with TensorFlow, is this specifically a neural network? That is a neural network, yeah. It is, um, it is this, uh, it, it's using the higher level API that I was telling you about before. It's uh, Keras. Yeah. Um, and and that's, that's one example of a neural network. And let me also link the, um, link the, the tutorials page. So I, I actually watched a, a video on this beforehand as kind of research on, on this specific problem. And I think that this is actually doing the same thing, because I see 28 by 28 in there for input shape. Uh, and I'm assuming that that's the pixels of the, the image that you're trying to classify. Yep, you are 100% spot on. Yeah, so it's turning that into just like a, uh, an array of pixel values for zeros or, or ones, or, or values that represent whether the pixel is colored or not. And then it's taking that from, um, I forgot how many that is, is it seven... I can't remember exactly how many are in a 28 by 28 uh, array, but um, taking that and then boiling it down to uh, a number zero through nine. Yep. And the, the mentality behind, um, so, so kind of the idea behind Keras and behind the, the super high level APIs is that developers, so if, if you're building a web application and you want to be able to do image classification or if you want to be able to do um, text classification or, or something of that nature, you shouldn't have to. I mean, it's, it's cool to understand the internals of a, of a neural network and to understand that when you select this particular kind of loss, it's applying this sort of transformation. Or if you select an atom optimizer, it's, um, it's putting this much uh, uh, sort of uh, tweaking the numbers and turning the knobs and dials in this way in order to help um, better predict, uh, uh, better predict whatever value that you're trying to. Um, but the idea is that as a, if you're a web application developer, you shouldn't have to know all of the internals of how a neural network works in order to to deploy a model to production. Um, like it's it's good to know, and it's especially good to know about the ethics of models and about how data um, how data can influence model decisions. Um, but in terms of the in, 
uh, having to know the linear algebra, that shouldn't be a prerequisite for, for being able to do cool things with machine learning. You mentioned web developers, um, is, and you mentioned also before that TensorFlow.js is a thing. Theoretically, um, is this just me running a library called TensorFlow.js in the browser, and then would I be able to actually load something like a model that you know, is doing like the MNEST data set to figure out, you know, what the handwritten numbers, is that something that you could practically run in a browser? And is the browser powerful enough to do that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so yes, the, the browser is uh, 100% powerful enough to run TensorFlow.js. Um, and they also recently released node bindings. Um, so, Ooh. so that allows, yeah, so that allows the same JavaScript code, um, to work in both the browser and Node.js while binding to the underlying C implementation. Um, so, so that's, that's pretty rad. And, and there's also, uh, so being able to use the GPU that you have in your laptop to train, um, even though you're running and, um, sort of creating this model in the browser is really really nifty um the the other um so so does does that kind of answer the question you can do a lot of really interesting uh most of my favorite tensorflow examples actually are all created with tensorflow js um so you can you can do pose detection in the browser so so if you're standing in front of your webcam and you're sort of flailing your arms around or you know doing a jumping jack or something it's able to detect uh sort of where your limbs happen to be um it's able to do eye tracking um able to do uh kind of uh sort of basic uh, uh sort of object segmentation so it's able to detect that i'm uh it's able to detect that i'm a human and draw a little line around me um it's able to uh oh gosh like you can there's this guy named uh tiro uh let me also put a link to his work uh his uh his handle on codepen is taropa um but he does the most awesome code pens for uh for uh sort of experimental drum machines using um using neural networks and you know sort of manipulating harmonics um using using deep learning so the idea is that you can create a melody with a guitar and then automatically have a drum accompaniment or like a a, a bass accompaniment created for you or it's it's really um I, I sort of I, I'm enchanted by the the sort of creativity that folks have been showing with the the TensorFlow JS examples. These examples are they using a like a pre-trained model uh, and then just applying that in real time in JS? Yes. Um, so so I think the examples that you're playing with on the website they're using a pre-trained model, um, but you would also be able to train your own models in the browser if you wanted to. Um, and to to be able to do, if you wanted to do object detection on sort of custom images or custom entities, um, you could use transfer learning on top of the existing model to to sort of make those modifications. Um, and I love the the post detection. That's interesting. Would there be a time 
that you would train something in the browser and a time that you would not train stuff in the browser? Like, is there sort of performance considerations to take into account when deciding whether or not you actually need to train something in the TensorFlow.js environment? That That is a great, great question. I personally, um, I, I prefer... Hmm, let me backtrack. So if you if you have a very, very large model, um, you should probably be training it using TensorFlow Core and then exporting it as a saved model um, to TensorFlow.js. Uh, and all the the sort of Keras, the friendly, you know, 10 lines of code syntax that I showed you before, um, that that works uh, to export as a saved model. Um, if you're if you have a small a sort of machine learning problem, um, it's fine to train it in TensorFlow.js. You might not see as high of accuracy as you would as you would expect from a TensorFlow core model, but it'll still be good enough to solve the task. Um, and then also you the the slowness factor. Um, so if you if you train in a browser using TensorFlow.js, it'll probably be a bit slower to train. Um, than if you use TensorFlow Core, and especially for large-scale models. So the small-scale stuff, it'll it'll still train in a reasonable amount of time. The large-scale stuff, it might be 10 to 15 times slower. Um, and I think that there's a benchmark on the website as well um, to kind of give an idea. Uh, yeah, let me let me send a link over to that guide. But yeah, so so the the idea is that. Um, for for the most part, uh, you you can you can train lots of you can train lots of models using TensorFlow.js. They're creating a models repo. Um, so let me let me pull up the link for that guy as well. Um, but the but the idea for that is is sort of a model garden, where again you don't have to know. Uh, everything in the world about uh, about neural networks and machine learning. In order to to implement and to use um, to implement and to use the the things that researchers have created, so that that link right there is a link to TFJS models on GitHub, um, and you can see MobileNet, so classifying images with labels, um, PoseNet, so the real time pose detection that you can see in the browser, object detection, speech commands, um, K nearest neighbors. Uh, and they're they're growing out this repo pretty substantially and very very quickly, um, so you can use off the shelf state of the art models without having to understand the machine learning internals. That's really cool. So I can just pick a model based on the problem I want, whether it's trying to detect like speech, um, like translating speech, or uh, or trying to find like edges of things uh, or or digits, like in that example. Um, is there a way to take a pre-made model like this and uh, manipulate it a little bit to to change it for a, diff a slightly different problem set? Yes, and that's uh, that's something called transfer learning. Um, okay. What what transfer learning does is it takes a model that's been trained on a sort of a large scale data set or or maybe with some very powerful architecture over a long period of time. Um, it takes the insight that was gained from that model, um, and then it adds a couple of additional layers to the top um, to say, um, so for example, the, the image detection model, um, it can detect a lot of different entities out of the box. So it can detect dogs, it can detect cats, it can detect, uh, you know, 
coffee mugs potentially um, and people. Um, but if you wanted it to recognize specific people or specific kinds of dogs, so to say like this is a Chihuahua and that is a Dachshund and that is a Boston Terrier, um, you would be able to build off all of the information that the models already learned about like, oh yeah, that's a dog. Um, provide like maybe five to 10 examples of a, what a Boston Terrier looks like and five to 10 examples of what a Chihuahua looks like and five to 10 examples of what, uh, you know, whatever your favorite breed of dog is. Um, and then that model would be able to, uh, to retrain. Um, it wouldn't take nearly as long because you would have much less data and it would have this entire big, long history of things it's already learned to pull from. Um, but it would be able to understand, okay, I see an image, and that is a Chihuahua, and that is a Boston Terrier, and that is, you know, whatever, um, for for that task. And th that was an image example, but it works the same way for text, um, though text is a little bit trickier to, to apply in multiple domains, um, to video and to audio. I actually think that I've done this with audio, now that I think of it. What what use um, case? Yeah, so on my Twitch stream, I wanted to have automated closed captions because, you know, I couldn't pull together a budget to have like live human-made captions. And so I took like a regular English, American English conversational model, and then I trained, like I sort of like created a data set of my own speaking, the words that I was saying on my Twitch stream, obviously my accent and any background noise. Mm -hmm. And I used that along with some... Um, subtitle files in order to sort of try and generate an additional layer on top to make it slightly more accurate. Is that the same that is, as what you just said? Absolutely. That's transfer learning. And it's, it's learning. Um, so it's taking all of the information that it's, uh, that it's used to understand English from a variety of different speakers. And then it's uh, sort of specially tuning to your voice. So it already understands what specific words are. And now it understands uh, what those words sound like when Sue says them. So, yeah, you use transfer learning. Congratulations. <laughs> Yay. Yay. It did actually push the accuracy up. It didn't push it up enough for me. Like it was still one in 10 words is wrong, which sounds really great, but it does sort of go on a weird chain if, you know, if one word is wrong, for example. But it was really exciting to see that that, works and that I didn't have to do the hard work of having to create that existing model in the first place, yep. which is really cool. Yep. And having to source all of the data, that's the other big thing. Like, cause to train, to train models to really high accuracies, you need a massive amount of data and also really, really high powered soft or really, really high powered hardware. So, um, you know, clusters of GPUs or things like, uh, TPUs or, or, um, if you if you wanted to to kind of roll your own in Verilog, you could use an FPGA. Uh, but um, sort of those those high end architectures that are also pretty pricey, and a lot of people, you know, myself included, I don't have access to massive amounts of data. You know, like it's so being able to take the models that that other folks have created. Um, and to build off them with my much smaller data sets, but still achieve high accuracy. It's pretty nifty.
This episode is brought to you by Raygun, who just launched their APM service. It was built with the developer and DevOps in mind. They're leading with first-class support for .NET apps, also available as an Azure app service, and have plans to support .NET Core, followed by Java and Ruby in the near future. After doing a ton of competitive research between the current APM providers, where Raygun APM excels is the level of detail they're surfacing. New Relic and App Dynamics, for example, are more business-oriented, where Raygun has been built for developers and DevOps. The level of detail provided in the traces are amazing. Amazing. The flame charts are awesome and allows you to actively solve problems and dramatically boost your team's efficiency when diagnosing problems. Deep dive into root cause with automatic links back to source for an unbeatable issue resolution workflow. Learn more and get started at raygun.com APM. Once again, raygun.com APM. So we talked about the fact that you can run models and also train models in the browser, but one thing that we sort of haven't really touched on is why are we trying to do this in the browser itself? Like what kind of advantages does that give us? That's a great question. And I think one of the reasons that TensorFlow.js started was because not everybody has access to high-end computational power. Browsers are kind of ubiquitous, right? If you want to hit everybody. Um, you probably want to. Uh, you probably would want to to implement it in the browser, as opposed to you know making somebody use Python or making somebody use something like C So having having machine learning in the browser was a natural choice, and that it's where you can where you can impact the most developers and and sort of give them the tools to create these impactful projects. Um, another another reason I think is because you have so many additional um, sort of uh, like like webcams, right? Like being able to uh, being able to use PoseNet or or object detection from the webcam on your laptop. Uh, that's that's also um, an amazing tool, and being able uh, being able to open up a browser from a phone uh, is also pretty rad. Um, so that was that was kind of the motivation is we want to do machine learning for everybody. Um, if we're wanting to do it for everybody, it can't just be Python. Let's put it in the browser, too. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. If it can be written in JavaScript, it eventually will be. <laughs> <laughs> Sky, uh, Skynet's going to be written in JavaScript, right? Like that's the, sure. that's the thing. <laughs> Uh, we touched on this a little bit at the break, but could you maybe um, summarize what some production uh, examples of TensorFlow might be? Oh, absolutely. And this is this is one of my favorite topics is uh, machine learning sounds great, you know, but I don't really care about hot dog, not hot dog, or I don't really think that there, <laughs> or I don't think that there's a use case for determining if something has a cat or not. Like that's that seems kind of silly. And I agree. I agree 100 um, percent. But some some tangible use cases that you could have. Um, for example, would be imagine how cool it would be is if you were typing an email um, and you were you were saying typing a sentence that might be taken offensively um, without without sort of recognizing it because, you know, it's it's 
the middle of the day, you haven't had enough coffee, maybe like it's, 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 you know, everybody, everybody feels kind of stressed at work. Think about how cool it would be if you had an automatic um, sort of typo looking suggestion pop up saying, hey, you know, like this, this term might be uh, taken in a, in a bad way. Um, maybe try these other words instead that might be a little bit less aggressive, or maybe, you know, this, sen- this sentence could be taken multiple ways. Um, maybe you should include an emoji to make sure that, uh, to make sure that folks know that you're, you're not being, um, that you're not being angry. You're just, you're just being playful or something of that nature. Um, another, another great use case is um, so Amazon, whenever it makes recommendations of what products you should buy or Netflix, whenever it makes recommendations that, hey, you should watch Black Mirror, um, it's because it's looking at all of the other viewing patterns of people similar to you, um, analyzing all of them, doing something called market basket analysis and then or um, or matrix factorization even um, if because market market basket analysis is kind of computationally intensive, but that's a, that's a rabbit hole. So just, just think of it as it's looking at a lot of people who have interests similar to yours and it's saying, well, Jane, who also liked A, B, and C watched D. So maybe Suze would also like D. Um, so that's, that's another example. Um, the other, uh, the other use case that, um, we talk about a lot at Google uh, is a mobile application that's able to detect um, sort of diseases in plants. This is being used in Africa where uh, Wi-Fi connectivity is kind of spotty. Um, so the, the model's actually been exported, so it doesn't have to rely on, on internet connectivity. Um, and farmers, uh, they can take a picture of a plant leaf and based on a corpus of data that it's been trained against, the model can tell them what kind of disease that plant leaf has, and then also how they would go about treating it. Um, so so those, those kinds of specific use cases. I, I feel like the machine learning community latches on to, to some of the, the more playful aspects and the, the more fun examples. Um, but in reality, there there are so many impactful ways that machine learning can help businesses, um, and they aren't quite as sexy as you know uh, the Silicon Valley examples. Um, but they are really cool, and um, TensorFlow JS and TensorFlow um, are more than capable of of taking care of any machine learning task. That's really cool. And given that this is being used in production. Um, and, you know, it's becoming really, really popular. Of course, um, another big topic in machine learning, too, is things like machine learning ethics and like how um, where the data is actually coming from to train these models and things like that. Um, and then you even look at things like adversarial uh, machine sort of um, learning attacks as well. And so I wanted to leave enough time to talk about that as well, just so that people are aware of some of the gotchas to look out for. Um, But let's sort of talk about maybe first some of the more foundational parts of machine learning ethics and and data sources and things like that. Can you sort of introduce us to where machine learning um, can sometimes go wrong? Absolutely. So I'm also going to, I hope Slack supports GIFs. So let me let me 
put that in there. Um, but this is something called TensorFlow model analysis. Oh man, it didn't do it. Gosh dang. Um, so let me uh, let me put the link there, and then also the link to the GitHub repo. So um, there's that and the what if tool as well. So machine learning models, they're only as good as the data that you put into them. That is um, that is not um, not a debatable topic, right? It's like like if you have a child that you're teaching how to recognize squares and triangles and circles and all the rest of it. Um, if you if you haven't been um, if you haven't been teaching the child uh, what a circle looks like, there's no way that he or she or would be able to would be able to understand that shape. Or say you're um, you're talking about dogs um, in a country that that only has like five particular breeds, um, and you go to a different country that has a dog, um, and that's not one of those five breeds, you probably wouldn't be able to accurately classify it because you had never seen that data before. That's kind of a fumbled example of your your data is is incredibly impactful. And what you see whenever you have data that's biased being used to create machine learning models is that groups that are marginalized or groups that are excluded from the data set or included in the data set, but in a negative way, just have those stereotypes perpetuated. And what does that mean? And a lot of people have heard about the, um, so, so there's a test that, that incarcerated individuals take towards the, towards the end of their prison sentence that determines whether or not they would be eligible for parole. And this test includes a lot of questions like, were, was anybody in your family um, also incarcerated? Or were your parents divorced? Or did you go to college? Or all, a lot of questions that really have nothing to do with the person themselves like, and are completely out of control of the person. Like You don't have any control over whether or not your parents get divorced. You don't have any control over whether or not people in your family have gone to prison. Um, and so, so uh, and those questions, they negatively impact people in already marginalized groups, so people of color um, and people who come from lower economic backgrounds. And what they found is that this test um, was preferentially granting um, early, um, early release of prison or early parole to, um, to white males who came from, you know, sort of wealthier backgrounds. And it was negatively impacting, um, men of color who came from impoverished backgrounds. And that was entirely due to the fact that the machine learning model that was created to predict whether or not people would have recidivism, whether or not they would start doing crime um, was being built on this corpus of data that was um, that was sort of pointing towards men of color being um, especially being especially likely to do that when that is not the case at all. So so building models on data that um, that isn't un, um, that is already biased means that you're going to have a biased model, and and it's really difficult to sort of understand where some of those biases could arise in data, um, which is why we have built tools as part of TensorFlow 
to help understand data sets and to spot those nuanced differences in features. So here you have uh, you have two links. One is the model analysis tool, and the other one is the the what if tool from our our Google research entity called Pair, which is People in AI Research. And what it does is it it sort of guides you towards questions that would be useful to ask as you're creating your model, um, to say like, well, if we if we look at the distributions for marginalized groups, um, what does this mean? Um, and also it, it helps spot um, spot uh, related feature types. So for example, zip code and race are very commonly related. Um, and that might not necessarily be straightforward if you didn't have experience working with census data. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm yeah. really glad that there are these frameworks coming out for, for you to ask those questions. And I even remember referring to one of your resources that you made I think at least a year ago, um, which was very yeah. helpful for me to understand where things can go wrong. Yeah, the the one from our open site. I can link to I can link to that as well. Um, the but it was it's just helping because um, nobody, you know, if you're if you're a researcher, nobody ever wants to um, nobody ever wants to to hurt anybody, right? Like uh, you know, assume no harm. Um, should be should be kind of the the first um, the first thought for all of us, and it, it's just that if if people aren't given um, insight into the questions that they should be asking, it's really it's really hard for them to to understand where things could go wrong. And so the the resource that Suze is mentioning was a collection of questions that can be asked throughout the entire model building process about where is your data sourced? How is it refreshed? Um, what, uh, how are you intending to keep it up to date? Um, what would be the, um, what would be one of the ways that uh, the ethical machine learning, um, the ethical machine learning vignette, and it was for our uncomp, but it was very, very focused on spotting and preventing um, proxy biases in in machine learning, um, and I use the example of of race and zip code uh, when predicting um, when predicting loans. Very cool, and we'll we'll make sure to provide all of these in the show notes for the episode. Um, uh, and it, it makes me wonder if we can uh, eventually get meta with this this kind of problem, uh, because there's as you mentioned, there's so many problems out there that are already using machine learning to you know, figure out what I want to buy next on Amazon or watch next on Netflix or, or uh, whatever. But then all of these uh, models that might have been created that, that do have these biases in them, I'm wondering if uh, machine learning can help you predict if your model is going to have bias eventually. <laughs> yeah, I would love to see that. Like, like uh, or at least kind of being able to better understand data sources and to be able to spot when you might have um, when you might have unintentional bias in your data. That's a great idea. And just on that topic, if you're if you're sort of in not really in the machine learning field and you know you're actually trying to choose a model to use for yourself, but you don't have a lot of that background knowledge, is there any way, given that models can really be a black box, is there any way for you to be able to somehow um, judge if it's going to be a model that isn't biased in negative ways? Like what, what kind of questions can you ask yourself when you're on that side and you're not actually the person developing the model? 
Gotcha. So it's it's always really hard to understand what data goes into a model if if you don't have sort of direct influence on that model's creation process. Um, but there are tools. Um, so I'm I'm thinking in particular of TensorBoard, um, which is let me put a link to that guy as well. Um, and then also a link to the to the TensorBoard GIF, which is probably the best. Uh, the best description of it that allows you to look at model architectures and to understand um, sort of what decisions are being made, where and when. Um, so, for example, uh, one study that was done um, that was done a while back, uh, it's kind of notorious in the machine learning community, is that they had a collection of photos of people, so just portrait photos of folks. They uh, and the research question was something to the effect of, "Can I detect whether or not this person is um, is gay or or you know has um, you know like not not of a binary sex uh, you know that that sort of thing? Detecting whether or not a person was gay based solely on a photo, which is ridiculous." You know, like that is that is the silliest uh, or one of the silliest research questions that I have ever heard in my entire life. But an academic published a paper saying that, yes, absolutely, they could. And here's how with machine learning. Um, and so a group of researchers at Stanford uh, challenged that as assertion and said, like, I don't think that you were that you were able to accurately gauge whether or not a person is gay based on a photo. Um, and they found by highlighting the pixels that were being used to make those assessments during the, the machine learning process, that what the model was picking up on wasn't, you know, anything about the human themselves. Um, it was detecting piercings on the face. Um, so so people, um, people with alternative, uh, alternative sexualities or, you know, people who prefer... Um, uh, so people, perf it's for whatever reason the the sourced images had preferentially more piercings than people um, who who were heterosexual, and the the model was picking up on that. So it would it would detect a piercing, and it was using that as a proxy to say this person is gay, um, which again is ridiculous. And then there was the other the other aspect that um, often. Um, the photos of people who are gay were were taken um, from kind of a different perspective. So from, you know, like looking up into the camera as opposed to looking straight on. And that was also being picked up by the machine learning model and has nothing to do with the person themselves, um, just the the sort of way that the photo was taken. And it's it's very uh, it's it's very sort of unnerving to think that that was a paper that was published um peer-reviewed before published uh and um that that nobody that nobody challenged throughout that process oh, that's crazy yeah and i can hunt down a link for the, for the pdf of that guy as well but it was it was awful and i see a question from david ai leading to inadvertent discrimination is really interesting um, and that that is one hundred percent true. Tiny input differences do um, do have massively different outputs over time. And the other thing is that 
um, if the models aren't kind of checked and QC'd, um, they just perpetuate the the bad assessments that they were making before. You know what I mean? Um, so like they uh, they will preferentially not give loans to people of color who come from low economic backgrounds, or they will preferentially not allow um, you know people of color to have uh, to 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 be able to be up for parole in a in a reasonable amount of time. Um, unless you unless you are actively asking questions to challenge the model's assessments and uh, the as an industry, I, I think that it's it's on all of us if you're doing anything with machine learning to ask these questions. Um, if something smells fishy, like it doesn't matter again, it doesn't matter if you have a PhD. If it sounds like it might be wrong, um, a model assessment might be wrong or biased in some way absolutely challenge um, the data science team that's being used to create it. But we do have, um, so the, the entity that I was mentioning before, um, PAIR at Google, uh, is People in AI Research. And it's a human-centered research and design initiative to make AI partnerships fair and to make sure that we have tools that will be able to help spot these biases. And TensorBoard's one of them. The What If tool is one of them sort of the the visualizations that happen through this uh this publication called distill.pub and that's supposed to be a link uh but but I guess it I guess it didn't go uh but it, it's uh sort of this beautiful um this beautiful uh publication that goes into what is actually happening whenever a machine learning model makes its assessment and how can we really understand um, the mathematics behind it, because it's so dang complicated. It's more complicated than a human could possibly understand. But how can we shine a light onto onto these decisions? This is great. And and I wanted to also throw in a couple of recommendations um, for myself. If you're trying to sort of understand this topic at a higher level, I found that two books that really helped me was Technically Wrong um, and also Weapons of Math Destruction, which yeah. is a really clever uh, it's a really clever title, but it's also very, very helpful. So if you were looking to sort of get a high level um, grasp of the topics before sort of diving into some of these more technical resources, then I would definitely recommend those two books. Absolutely. And then there's also an ethics, um, like a, a little one hour ethics uh, um, ethics extension to um, to Google's machine learning crash course. Uh, 60 minutes, self-paced. And it goes through a lot of biases that you experience in machine learning, but it's also interesting and in that those biases are expressed in everyday life as well. Um, so if, if it can fool a human, um, it can also fool a model. Uh, it's it, really um, sort of interesting to see. This episode of JS Party is brought to you by OneMonth.com, one of the best places to learn how to code in just one month. Their courses have helped over 60,000 students go from knowing zero about coding to building programs and languages like JavaScript, Python, and Ruby. OneMonth.com graduates have gone on to get jobs at awesome startups like Airbnb, Instagram, and Spotify. Their courses are easy to follow with step-by-step -step video tutorials, instructor-led with weekly assignments reviewed by your instructor, and results 
results-driven, with each student graduating the course with a portfolio of projects to show prospective employers, as well as a certificate of completion. If you're interested in taking your career to the next level, head to onemonth.com jsparty and get 10% off any coding course. Once again, that's onemonth.com jsparty to get 10% off any coding course. A big thank you to onemonth.com for supporting JS Party and online education. I'm so excited to talk to you about this topic. (laughs) So Paige. I know what you're going to ask and I'm super jazzed about it. (laughs) (laughs) So for those who are listening, um, Paige and I actually used to work together. And one particular topic that uh, I get excited about that I know that Paige is really excited about that I couldn't not mention is, Paige, can you talk to us about uh, the topic of adversarial machine learning? Like, what is that? And And it does actually tie into the ethics a little bit, too, from the previous segment. Absolutely. And I just posted a link in the in this as the Slack channel about a library called Clever Hans, which doesn't get nearly enough love, um, but which is is something that that I vitally enjoy. And one of my colleagues, Ian Goodfellow, uh, is the the sort of lead. Um, Think of it as the red team. For machine learning. So the red team for security is like, okay, I, you know, you've built this enchanting ivory tower system. I'm going to see if I can bring it down. And Clever Hans is like the red team for machine learning. Um, so oh. yeah, right. Like, so the, a question, right? Like, so you have machine learning models. Um, you have this, this great pipeline where you can input some sort of data and then get back some sort of predictive assessment with some sort of confidence level. So I think that this is a dog with 85% confidence. Um, How would you go about breaking that? And the answer is that it is exceedingly fragile um, to, to to be able to manipulate these systems in ways that would bring them down kind of catastrophically. So what do I mean by that? There's this great example, um, and I'll send a link to the paper. Uh, it's, it's probably listed on the Clever Hans GitHub as well. Um, but there was a research team um, that was looking at uh, a classification model for pandas and for um, gibbons. And gibbons are kind of monkeys. So it was looking at various animal types. And you would have an image that was very clearly a panda. Um, the machine learning model would correctly assess that it was a panda with like a pretty good confidence. Um, and then uh, the the question was made of, well, uh, what if I introduce a small amount of noise into this into this image? Um, like, what if I take uh, just random noise, apply it? Uh, here we go. So I, I found uh, I found the the tweet from because everything everything I do I tweet. It's like the and eventually I will I will be an old lady and I will be delighted because I will have this this complete timeline of my life. But there we go. So so uh, it has a panda with 57.7% confidence. 
you introduce a very small amount of random noise to the image. Um, so to a human, it still looks exactly like a panda. It looks exactly the same. Um, but suddenly your neural network thinks that it's a gibbon, a monkey, with 99.3% confidence, just like a massive, um, a massive amount of certainty that this is a gibbon when in reality it is totally a panda. And you probably also saw the example a while back where um, you had a turtle that was painted in such a way that, uh, that a neural network thought that it was a gun. Um, and there are, uh, there are stickers that, uh, that can be uh, placed on street signs so that neural networks that are used for self-driving cars might not be able to um, might not be able to detect that those are street signs that they should stop at. There are um, you know ways that you can uh, sort of put on makeup that make it so that the facial recognition um, networks don't recognize who you are. Um, it's uh, it's amazing and well and not amazing. It's terrifying and awesome. Um, that that these that these systems have been so optimized for um, for particular tasks that they uh, that they um, that they just uh, break if you show them something that's completely outside of the realm of their experience. I like to I like to talk about overfitting the same way that I talk about um, that I talk about learning things in school. Right, like everybody went to school with the kids that were super great at memorizing stuff. Like they, you know, you, you gave them a list of, um, list of terms and they were able to spit back out exactly the definition or, um, you know, if you, if you gave them a math problem that they'd already seen, they were able to sort of regurgitate the, the answer, um, without thinking too hard about it. But if you showed them something new, so if you gave them something that they had never seen before, a problem that required some sort of creativity that uh, that required them to apply what they had learned previously to a new situation, um, they they just kind of they just kind of uh, fell into you know they they weren't able to do it, and that is overfitting a machine learning model is that it's very very good at sort of making assessments on data that it's already seen before. And then when you show it something that's just a little bit new, um, it, it's unable to it's unable to sort of generalize to this new situation. So and yes, the the answer. Uh, so David, you are one hundred percent spot on. Um, there's there's always uh, so imagine um, if you had a system that was tasked with determining whether or not there would be a missile location and a satellite image, um, and you had a nefarious actor that was working either internally or externally that uh, decided to manipulate images with random noise in the hopes that it would uh, that your system would think that there was uh, you know some sort of missile location in, in a place that wasn't um, that was that was completely that was completely innocuous or to be able to um, to be able to obfuscate a missile location from the satellite image itself. Um, but that is, and and you also see things like deep fakes, um, so so which is outside the realm of adversarial machine learning, but is also very troubling. Um, the the 
the tooling that we build. So again, things like the what if tool, things like model analysis, things like TensorBoard, being able to spot, um, being able to spot these changes in data, being able to spot, um, you know, images that have been altered in some way. This is going to be huge. And it's, again, all of our responsibility to make sure that we push companies to be doing this work um, because it, it's, uh, again, it's, it's just so easy for these, these fragile models to, to be compromised. Definitely some good food for thought. Thank you so much for covering that. I don't know about you, but I'm probably not going to sleep as tight tonight <laughs> <laughs> thinking about this kind of stuff. Um, but it's it's really important to share how exciting machine learning is, but obviously the the gotchas and the sort of Spider-Man great power, great responsibility. So really appreciate you being able to talk about such a massive breadth of, of um, what machine learning actually involves. This is awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you, you very for much. inviting me. Yep. Thank you for inviting me. This was this was fun, um, and I I highly encourage everybody um, to try out TensorFlow.js. To if something breaks, like uh, please yell at me on Twitter or yell at me on uh, via email. My my address is webpage at google.com, page spelled like my name, um, and also um, again just to reiterate, you don't have to have a PhD to challenge what a model is assessing. If something, um, if something doesn't strike you as being particularly fair, or if something strikes you as being biased, definitely speak up um, and, and sort of make those, make those concerns known. Because um, it's, it's all of our responsibility to, to sort of be the watchman for this stuff. Um, and it's, it's a huge, um, like I have huge optimism for what machine learning can do for society and for businesses and for people, um, but also a very healthy respect for for how much um, for how much it's going to take all of us working together to make sure that that reality is the reality that happens. Oh, Paige, that was the perfect last sentence to take us out. Thanks. <laughs> I'm going to stop it right there. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. Read us an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at ChangeLaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash ChangeLaw. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLaw.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. I'm Daniel Whitenack. And I'm Chris Benson. We host Practical AI, a show making artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. You'll hear interviews with AI influencers and practitioners, and we'll keep you up to date with the latest news and learning resources so that you can cut through all of the hype. 
In terms of environmental sustainability, like Microsoft has won numerous awards for that. We've been carbon neutral since 2012. But the way we look at it is even if Microsoft was absolutely perfect, there's only so much impact Microsoft as a company is having just in our own operations. So how could we scale out even more? AI for Earth was really our answer to that question. By dedicating this $50 million over five years, that enables everyone to be able to partake. New episodes of Practical AI premiere every Monday. Find the show at changelog.com slash practical AI or wherever you listen to your podcasts.